Welcome to the Elgin Watchmen Podcast, coming to you from Elgin, Illinois, the historic home of the now-defunct Elgin Watch Company. The Elgin Watchmen Podcast is a monthly show focused on environmental sustainability issues in our city and throughout the Fox Valley. And now, here are your hosts, Eric Anderson and Tia Agassiz. Hello and welcome once again to the Elgin Watchman Podcast. I'm Eric Anderson and today I'm not joined in person by my co-host, but from a distance, as we so frequently do during these, you know, unprecedented times, I'm joined by Tia by telephone. So I guess you're literally phoning it in today. Isn't that right, Tia? Yeah, that's nice. Thanks, Eric. Great. I am absolutely phoning it in today. I was Super lucky a couple of weeks ago with the June commission meeting being the shortest one ever, but my luck ran out thereafter. I have been under the weather, and so I'm being responsible and keeping my germs off of your microphone for right now. Thank God. So <laughs> our audience is going to have to bear with me and my voice that comes and goes, but that's fully returning, and give us the grace of calling an audible this week. Um, but honestly, enough about me. We have a podcast host, and while this might be a little bit of a shorter episode, it's no less uh, full of really important information. So we have a nice little surprise for our listeners today as we continue the topic of lead in Elgin drinking water. Is that right? That's right, we do. If I remember correctly, the last time we talked, we had Kyla Jacobson, and she was the former director of Elgin's water department. She helped us understand quite a bit about the water sampling process. She answered a lot of questions around the history of what's called the lead and copper rule. And she also talked us through how all these laws have culminated into the letter that you and your husband got in the mail from the city of Elgin, uh, I think a few months ago, regarding the potential for lead being in your drinking water. Am I remembering all this correctly, Tia? Yeah, no, that's right. And you might also recall, of course, we ended our conversation with Kyla and had more questions, which is kind of one of I want to focus this week on why all of this matters. You know, I mentioned I've been locked in my bedroom recovering from COVID, which left me lots of time to think uh, about things like health and well-being and how our environment has very real impact on our lives. And all of this made me wonder if we could talk to someone who could maybe shine a light on what exactly lead does to a person when they're exposed, say, in their drinking water. What are the signs, maybe symptoms and effects? How serious is this? You know, is this getting blown out of proportion? How does it maybe show up? And especially in children, because that seems where things seems to be where things are focusing. Oh yeah, yeah, those are all great questions. And you're right. We've all heard snarky jokes about kids eating paint chips, right? Which is one of the big sources of lead poisoning in children. But lead in people's drinking water is also really serious. And honestly, it's a topic we all probably assume that we know something about. But I'm betting that you and I and our listeners have a lot to actually learn. So who are we going to call this week to you? My money? I think my money's on Ghostbusters. What do you say? <laughs> yeah, myself, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not on the Ghostbusters thing, but <laughs> I mean, this lead and copper rule, which we discussed with Kyla on last month's episode, specifically requires education and outreach within medical facilities and public health agencies if lead levels in tested households exceed a specific level, particularly, again, in those at-risk populations and especially places like schools, hospitals, health programs, the list goes on and on. So I kind of figured since so much of the lead and copper rule and other regulations focus on education in this area, that might be a good place to start. Maybe there's someone who has had to educate the public on this very topic somebody with a medical background. Um, so through the super helpful connections of my husband's stepmother, 
I was able to find someone. Her name is Shannon Flint, and she's a pediatric educator and a nurse um, right here in the Chicagoland area. And originally, um, we were going to talk to her together, but since you're covering my ass this week, uh, you chatted with her, didn't you? Yes, I did, but I must admit, the telephone interview just, mm, it wasn't the same without you, Tia. <laughs> Of course it wasn't. I'm the charming one in our podcast. So uh, why don't you fake Dale Shannon into today's episode, and I'm going to step away for a moment and go take another shot of cough medicine. You got it. Here we go. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Yes, hello. Is this Shannon Flint? It is. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Shannon. This is Eric Anderson from the Elgin Watchman podcast. Uh, Tia's husband's stepmother, Laura, pointed us in your direction, and she thought that you would be able to answer some of our questions about the potential health effects of lead in our drinking water. Uh, do you have a few minutes to chat? I do. Fantastic. Now, before we start, you know, I just want to make clear that neither you or I are dispensing any kind of medical advice today. We're just exploring the topic of health effects of lead on people and especially in children. We encourage anyone out there um, who might be listening to the podcast today who might also be concerned about this particular topic to please talk with your doctor and follow their advice. I guess with all that said, let's get started. And let me ask Shannon, would you maybe please start by telling our listening audience a little bit about yourself and your medical credentials and background? So I have a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Chicago, University of Illinois at Chicago, and have over 20 years nursing experience in pediatrics. Wow, fantastic. It sounds like we're talking to the right person about this topic. T and I have been talking a lot about lead in drinking water, and there's been some test results in Elgin point to some households having elevated levels, and they're not really quite sure what's leading to that. But as we've started unpacking this issue, one of the logical questions we've, you know, a lot of questions we've had have been around like health effects of lead. And so... You know, the EPA has set maximum contaminant levels, and they've set a goal for lead in drinking water to be literally zero. And it gets a little confusing because the EPA's lead monitoring program has like a two-tiered action trigger standard, you know, at 10 PBB and 15 PBB. And I'm guessing PBB is parts per billion. And outside of the EPA, there's other organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund, and they're now recommending that families with formula-fed infants look at a benchmark um, or benchmark numbers of 3.8 parts per billion and 8.2 parts per billion. And that just kind of got T and I talking, right? And it got us to ask, is there is there a safe level of lead contamination for like human beings? And can you maybe explain the medical term bioaccumulation? Because we keep coming up across that term whenever we do some research about this question. And so again, any safe levels and what's all? What's all this talk about bioaccumulation? So there is no safe lead level Ooh. for children. There's been no no body of science that has said that there is a safe level of lead in kids. So bioaccumulation is when the rate of intake of lead exceeds the rate of excretion. So at the time of lead exposure, it enters the bloodstream, and you'll see a rise in the blood lead levels. So once a child's exposure to lead stops, though, the amount of lead in the blood decreases gradually. Okay. So the the child's body will release some of that lead through different avenues like urine, sweat, feces, or stool. But if it's been a long exposure, lead is also stored in bones. Oh, wow. And that can take decades for uh, the lead stored in the bones to decrease. We know lead is a neurotoxin. The problem with bioaccumulation is is that as it builds up, it's poisoning 
our brains. So the neurocognitive effects of lead exposure cannot be reversed. Oh, so the effects can't be reversed. So I think one thing that we were reading was it can impact like IQ, right? Correct. And so once that damage is done, you it's not like you can regrow your IQ. And that's what you're kind of um, intimating here, right? Correct. Okay. Are there other effects of lead that people should be aware of? Um, yeah. Long-term effects can include damage to the brain or the nervous system. It can be slowed growth or development. Again, talking about your bones, learning and behavior problems, or hearing and speech problems. So while research tells us that exposure to lead is serious, as you were just explaining, why is lead exposure, even low-level lead exposure, so much more serious in children? What are some of the long-term effects that lead can have on kids? I I know we just mentioned like IQ and growth, right? But are, are there other things? So children, especially those less than six years old, are undergoing rapid brain development. And when exposed to lead during this time, they can, that can lead to those long-term problems. So children are able to absorb more lead into their bodies given the same exposure as an adult. And of what they absorb, 40% of that can be, uh, of what they were exposed to can be absorbed. 70% of that absorbed blood can then be absorbed in the bone and oh, wow. re-released into the blood during periods of bone growth. So that's why ch- children are at such great risk. Oh, that makes so much sense. Children with iron, calcium, and zinc deficiencies are also at higher risk of lead toxicity. So, for example, children with an iron deficiency when exposed to lead will absorb more of the lead into their bloodstream because of that deficiency. I don't suppose you want to go into why that is, do you? No. Okay. (laughs) That's something that somebody needs to take as part of a college course. I get it. I get it. Okay. Um, Are there signs or symptoms that parents should be looking for when it comes to, you know, their children and lead exposure? Do their eyes twitch or something crazy like that? This is why it it can be hard. I'm sure. The number one risk factor is a known exposure. And most children have no obvious immediate symptoms. And we know low-level exposure can produce symptoms that progress slowly over time. So it can be really hard to identify for parents. But things that they can look for are cognitive delay or lower IQ. That might also translate into poor school performance if you have a school-aged child. Inattention or hyperactivity, speech or language delays, and even hearing delays. That sounds so common, and you're describing, like, I can imagine, and I'm just being facetious here, but like half the kids in America, right? Um, Right, and that's why it's so important to know what we're being exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of gets us to, um, you know, this question about testing. I'm not quite sure, Tia and I, uh, as we've done some Googling, I'm not sure we really understand the test. So what can you tell us about testing for lead levels in humans? And what does the testing process look like? And, you know, where can people go to get a test? And who should they speak with about testing? And how long does it take to get the test results back? And what do doctors and nurses look for in those test results? Just kind of just talk about testing, could you please? Yeah, so testing for lead levels is typically done by a blood test. The gold standard being the venous blood blood level. Hmm. Um, The measurement of lead in the blood is in micrograms per deciliter. So the CDC uses a blood lead reference value of 3.5 micrograms per deciliter to identify children with blood lead levels that are higher than most children's blood levels. That's kind of their defining number that they're looking at. But this blood lead reference value was updated in 2021. And previously, the CDC recognized five micrograms per deciliter as a high level. And that was from 2012 to to just currently in 2021. Prior to 2012, 
the level was 10 micrograms per deciliter or higher as the reference range used to determine high blood lead levels in children. So you can see as we're going along, we're kind of recognizing that even small amounts of lead can be harmful to children. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Blood tests can be obtained through your primary health care provider or the local health department. And private insurance policies typically, typically cover the cost of lead testing. And for any child enrolled in Medicaid, blood lead testing is covered by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. That's good news. There are two types of blood tests that your doctor might order. The first one is a capillary blood test, and that's typically a finger stick or a heel stick. A venous blood test uses a needle inserted into a vein to draw the blood, and results typically take a few days for both of those tests. If the capillary blood test indicates a high level, a venous blood test would be ordered to confirm that result. And as always, results should be discussed with the child's physician. That makes so much sense. So, again, I, I understand we're not dispensing medical advice today, but let's hypothetically say that a child's lead test results come back and there's some evidence of lead exposure, but it doesn't rise to the level of being maybe a concern or maybe it's not severe. Understanding that you're not giving medical advice again um, to any of our listeners right now, are you able to share what some medical providers might tell those patients in those instances, generally yeah, speaking? Okay. Yeah, first and foremost, if we're concerned at all for a lead exposure, is we want the exposure to a lead source to be reduced or removed. The other thing that they would recommend typically is to maintain well child visits. If a child has a known lead exposure, that's something that will require closer follow-up care. But well child visits for the regular child, there are things that our physicians and uh, healthcare providers that are monitoring, such as are children meeting age-appropriate milestones? Do they have a good diet, especially do they have good iron and calcium intake, which we've just discussed mm -hmm. as um, deficiency causing increased exposure to lead in the absorption of lead if there's an exposure. And then they can also recommend blood level testing appropriate to the child's age. So I talked about the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services prior, and they do require that all children en enrolled in Medicaid to get tested for lead at ages 12 and 24 months as a screen. And oh. if they had never been screened, they recommend that you get tested between uh, the ages 24 and 72 months. And for all other kids, screening is focused on high-risk exposures. So if you have a known exposure, so if we know about a water contaminant or if we know about living in a home that was built prior to 1978 when leaded paint or plumbing was commonly used. Another thing that we're able to provide at Well Child Visits is ed education on common lead exposure risk. So those are things that we can do for you if we know that it's not a concern for a high lead level. All right. I suspect we've already maybe answered this question already. And again, we probably can't get into you know the details because we're not giving out medical advice in this interview. But is there anything that could be done to lower lead levels in somebody's blood after exposure or, you know, due to what what you described earlier about bioaccumulation, can lead levels just go up over time? Or is there treatment? I guess treatment's probably out of bounds because we're not dispensing medical advice. What can you generally say about, you know, lowering lead, lead, um, lead levels in blood? So prevention is key. And that's why we talk so much about it. That's why you're screened for it when you go to your well child visit. If your blood levels are high, please, please, please speak to your medical provider. They will be able to discuss different treatments that may help lower 
uh, your lead level if it is deemed too high. All right. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, I want to thank you for taking time today to join us um, on the podcast, Shannon. Is there is there really anything else you'd like to add to this discussion that you haven't been able to share because maybe I just wasn't smart enough to ask that question? Besides prevention is key, please, please educate yourself on what your exposure risk is and talk with your medical professional. Well, that's, that's pretty simple. Again, thank you so much. I really appreciate you talking about this topic. It's something that concerns a lot of us, especially after what happened a few years ago in Flint, Michigan. Um, you know, and it ended up on our daily news shows for a long time. And, you know, in communities like Elgin, where we end up testing the water every so many years, when test results come back and they cause some concern, people just want to learn more. So I really appreciate you taking a few minutes out of your day to talk about the effects of lead and what people should do about that. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, thank you again, Shannon, for all of your knowledge and expertise and for sharing with us for a few minutes. We all need more people like you to help us all navigate life. But let's talk takeaways. Um, Eric, I will say there's one thing that stood out to me. Oh, really? What was that? I believe it was in our conversation with Kyla where she mentioned the quote-unquote safe levels for lead in sampled water have kind of gradually decreased over the years, and they're now at a point where there really is no safe level. And then I'm listening to Shannon, and she's saying the same thing. Unequivocally, there's no safe level of lead. And honestly, if I know that I might have lead pipes or fixtures or service lines, I'm maybe now thinking very differently about replacing them. I don't mean to you know, be alarmist in this, but if we're hearing that the allowable level is zero, let's eliminate the risk of exposure, right? Yep. So I have questions around things like where does that leave the onus and obligation for things like lead service line replacement? Um, is there a greater sense of responsibility and urgency around replacements? I kind of think so. And especially, and I had a lot of time to do some digging, um, when you look at, you know, the press release that the EPA sent out about the upcoming changes that Kyla was talking about to the lead and copper rule, um, and it discusses things like accelerating the real world pace of lead service line replacement. And there's all kinds of details there. So doesn't it kind of seem like the calculus has sort of shifted here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally walked away from my talk with Shannon with those thoughts. I also found a lot of clarity about why young people whose bones are still growing are especially at risk for long-term health problems due to exposure to lead. And I think the most frightening thing I learned was that the signs of lead poisoning aren't immediately obvious. I mean, it would be great if like a big neon sign on a child's forehead started flashing bright colors once they started getting exposed to lead. But the symptoms are common kind of like COVID when you think about it, right? And um, it's those symptoms are just common to so many other illnesses, which means long-term and irreversible damage can set in before lead poisoning is actually diagnosed. Those were my takeaways. Yeah, I agree. And again, without being alarmist, it is is kind of frightening. Thank you again for quarterbacking that call with Shannon. Uh, Maybe we should replace our theme songs this week with the theme from the Golden Girls and say thank you for being a friend. You are truly a blanch to my Dorothy. Uh huh. You you must be feeling better, Tia, since you've you've continued the theme from our last episode by making me the slutty golden girl. Now, (laughs) didn't you? You caught me, but I think that makes me the stuffy nerdy one, which I'll take. Yes, Tia. We can all certainly hear that your COVID infection has certainly made you very stuffy. (laughs) But (laughs) all kidding aside, I hear that you're lining up a potentially awesome guest for our next Lead in Drinking Water themed episode, right? 
Oh, man. Yes. Uh, I'm so excited about this. I reached out to Eric Weiss, who is the current director of the Elgin Public Works Department. Being the charming one of the two of, us, two of us, I asked him if he would consider talking to us, and I even said pretty please. And all signs are ready to go. I am so excited. I'm starting to see how the nerdy, stuffy Dorothy character makes sense for you. And uh, why is this such a big deal? Well, if you remember, we had lots of questions for Kyla around things like lead service lines and the city's lead service line replacement program. And where the F are these lead service lines even at anyway? And Kyla responded with, I don't know, I'm retired and living that Florida life. Go talk to Eric Weiss. And so we're going to do exactly that. And we're hopefully going to shed some light on how folks can take advantage of some of those programs and help Elgin residents figure out how to take advantage of this program, which recently received an injunction of American Rescue Plan funding. I have lots of questions, and I think you do too. I do. So we need to cut this one short. You need to get back to bed and get better. And we both need to start working on creating a list of questions for Eric Weiss, or is it Weiss? I'm not really sure. Maybe that'll be the very first question we ask Eric, right? Is it Weiss or Weiss? Absolutely. (laughs) I think so. Uh, And you, my friend, might want to sharpen your pencils for the upcoming commission meeting, because I think a fire has been lit down at City Hall around the whole single-use plastic bag fee ordinance thing. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever do you mean, Tia? Whatever do you mean? Oh, do not be coy. Uh, I guess we'll just have to tune in to find out, won't we? I think we will. And until then, as we say at the end of every podcast of the Elgin Watchman, get involved, be engaged, and always keep watch. Thank you for listening to the Elgin Watchman podcast. If you want more information about what you just heard on this episode, visit our website, elginwatchman.com. The Elgin Sustainability Commission meets the second Tuesday of every month. Check out our website for meeting details. Do you have an idea for a future podcast? We want to hear it. Drop us a line at info at elginwatchman.com. Thanks for listening.